0: Please open up to Revelation 19 and I will tell you if you haven't looked at your notes already that you've been handed out, why I am excited and why why my tears are coming. These are good tears. These are rejoicing tears because Revelation 19 tells us this, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back and we are waiting for him. If he tarries... And we die before he comes back. This is the promise that we're going to see him as he comes back. Not sure how all that's going to take place. Remember the dead in Christ rise. We meet him in the air. Cool stuff. Really cool. I have to mention Rick. uh, Because it's September 11th. Rick was at the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001. And so I want to thank, that we're going to talk about battles. I want to thank our veterans again. I always want to appreciate our veterans in November. But, you know, we, we face physical battles in this life. And we have a country that defends us. And we are really grateful for that. And I am so very grateful for that. Um, but I just always think of Rick on this day. <laughs> but love you, brother. All right. Revelation 19. Let's jump in. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who captured the earth with her immorality For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited. To the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me. These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet. To worship him. But he said to me. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus. Is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw. who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged were gorged with their flesh. Lord, please help us. Not just understand uh, a vision, but understand your authority over all things and help us understand your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Picture with me, if you would, a small village in the valley of mountains, with a stream that runs through that village. And everybody is living their lives, and they they came to that village because of the stream a few generations before perhaps they had started coming because before this it was filled with water a few miles upstream there's a huge dam that's holding back the water and maybe the generations after, the ones who had built the dam to be able to settle in the valley, maybe they, they, their voice was lost on their children and their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. Like, hey, make sure that you just remember there's a dam upriver. Be careful, because things happen. But maybe they were just living life and they began to forget about the dam and forget about the danger of living a few miles downstream from that dam. And they got comfortable. And they were just living their life. But some people came and would say, hey, remember, there's a dam upriver that we, we should pay attention to. No, don't worry about that. We're, we're secure. We have everything we need. This is good. We have the stream. It's all right. See, it's, it's dangerous to get so comfortable when there's a looming potential energy upstream. We, we can get uh, distorted and comfortable with the kinetic energy, things going on around us all the time. Uh, we get just in the busyness of life and things, we forget things and, oh, I don't have time for that. I overlook this. We live in a world that's all about the kinetic energy, but doesn't understand there's a potential energy, energy which is basically God's hand acts as the dam to all of the power of heaven. And that power of heaven is being held back by him. Now, thankfully, it's so powerful that he lets it overtop his hand to spill into our lives today. And in the redemption that we live, we're feeling the foretaste and the foreshadowing of what we'll experience in heaven in glory. But his hand is holding something back. His hand is holding back for believers, the ultimate. Fulfillment of all of his promises to us that will be sinless in heaven. There'd be no more tears and no more suffering. The pain that we walk through life will be completely gone. So he's holding that back in some ways, but he's also holding back his ultimate judgment on rebellious, proud sinners. But Remember, every day he doesn't unleash the full power of heaven is a mark of his patience because he wants more people to come to him. He wants more people to experience the grace of the power of heaven, not the judgment that sends them out to never experience heaven again. So, what we what we have in the Book of Revelation is the story of these two energies: the potential energy of heaven awaiting to be revealed, and we have the kinetic energy of of uh, the persecution that the church is experiencing, and the the dragon, and the the political beast, and the the religious beast, the two beasts that we have, and then the, the woman, the prostitute that's riding those with the power of seduction, a lot of kinetic energy, and we get caught up in that. But we are the ones, the church is the one to remember, wait, there's something else. Though we have a stream, there's a bigger power. There's a bigger power that we need to live under and through. The kinetic energy is going on all around us. It's the hectic, uh, rebellious life of those who bear the mark of the beast, those who are characterized by their pride and evil and wickedness. Those who are living under the power of the dragon and the beast and the prostitute live there as if there's no pending doom awaiting them. They're deceived into thinking they have time. They have security in their pockets when only a few miles upstream or Or a few years from now, there's a power beyond what they can fathom getting ready to be unleashed. And those in the valley are deceived by their power and their comforts, unwilling to acknowledge the ultimate power of God stored up in that dam, which is his withholding hand. We live in that valley. And the psalmist called, the Puritans called it the valley of the, well, we have in in, uh, Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. And in the Puritans, they, they would call it the valley of vision because when you're in that shadow is when you see the vision of God that really sustains and brings you through. So here's our big point. One day God will remove his patient and determined hand, holding back heaven, and Jesus will come back for his bride. And what a day of rejoicing. But we are with chapter 19 opening the, the fifth window in Revelation. I put them there again for you to see in our study as we walk through this. The first window that we see. And remember, this is not something, Revelation is not something far off. It's something that's happening in the spirit realm as we exist. So what, what John, the apostle John is experiencing is the angel comes and just brings him to a window and moves the curtain. And he's looking outside to reality that's going on in a spirit realm that, that we experience also physically, but though we can't see. So the first one, we see Jesus in his church with the messages that he gave to the churches. And then in the second window, we see Jesus on his throne. And then the third, Jesus within spiritual conflict that's 12 through 14 is those beasts that rage, but the king is reigning. And then in verses, uh, I'm sorry, chapters 15 to 18, we see Jesus as judge. And we, we see the, the harsh reality that no one escapes his judgment. No one escapes. And that's sobering and should appropriately grieve us as believers. And we don't wish his judgment upon unbelievers. We appeal to them. We pray for them for repentance. But here in this final, fifth and final window that we're seeing, we see Jesus in victory. We're going to see the new Jerusalem come down, the new heaven and the new earth and all the promises. Listen, all the promises that the earth strives for. It's all the promises that science is seeking to achieve within medical advancements. How do we prolong life? How do we take away disease? How do we clear tears? Our earth, every person on this earth yearns for heaven. But the only way to get that is not because we collectively put our minds together and achieve something great. That was the Tower of Babel. They tried that. They thought they had that technology that would, let's make a name for ourselves and put us up there with God. No, Jesus says, you you have that heaven through me and only me. Now, in the first five verses in this chapter, we see worship. And, And worship is our response to God's work. When God works in our lives, the very first response that we're to have is to worship him. Not not a performance, not a duty, we're to worship him. And listen, as we look at these verses, worship is centered on God, not us. It's, It's always been a motivation for us as we sing worship songs as a church to highlight it. It doesn't help me to pay more attention to me, to try to figure out how I can be comfortable more with me. What helps me is I look at God and I forget about me, because when I look at God, what the, the things just kind of the things that are vying for my attention just kind of drop off the scene, and I, I see Jesus glorified. And the worship there is also for God's promises fulfilled, even His promise to judge. We worship Him for His promise to judge, but within His plan to vindicate His holiness, He judges unbelievers. And in that judgment of unbelievers, he is proving and saying, the people who trusted me, my saints, I'm proving their faith. I'm vindicating their lives. I'm vindic- Remember, you had all the martyrs that were asking, how long? How, how long is this going to take? And when will you avenge the blood that's been spilled, God? God had to tell them, time is coming. Be patient for it. But remember, the blood of the martyrs hasn't been been completed that needs there's more that's going to happen but we worship God for his promises fulfilled then in verses 6 through 10 there is wedding jubilation happening It, it is a cosmic proclamation of the groom coming for his bride and we have in this chapter four occurrences of the word hallelujah and I never understood until I studied this week that that's the only time in the new testament this word appears I say it all the time I say hallelujah all the time. I don't remember when I started saying it. I just say it. And I never knew what it meant. <laughs> I just, well, just feel like that's a response I should have. Well, this is what it means. You praise God. So in response to somebody who is saying something about God, that's correct. Like, hallelujah. You praise God. The hallel is, is the praise and the yah is the the word, Hebrew word, it's the shortened word for God because the Hebrews are very careful not to give the full name. Uh, and we, we put Yahweh in the Old Testament or capitalize Lord. It's Lord in all caps because the Hebrew culture was very, very careful not to say the name of God because they didn't want to blaspheme. And they didn't want to take his name in vain, meaning they didn't want to use his name as just common currency. That happens so much in our culture. So these, these are there, but when, when hallelujahs were sung, the Hallel psalms, it was before a meal. So we have four hallelujahs, and what's getting ready to happen? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that glorious? When, when Jesus had that last supper, remember they went out and they sang some hymns right before supper? It's because it was incorporated with this meal. There's, being, there's a meal being prepared. And what we see with this husband and wife language is that God has continually spoken in wedding terms to his people. In Isaiah 54 verse 5, for your maker is your husband. In Ephesians 5, we learn husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We have this connection of wedding terms. And there's the marriage of the lamb has come. What, what fulfillment of anticipation. I have had the blessing of marrying off two of my daughters, my two oldest daughters. I have three more. It's like this. It's great and it's marvelous. But as a dad, it feels weird. It's like, all right. If I love my sons-in-law, which is great. But there, I, I've watched them have, there's a date that's set. See, and we want Jesus to let us know that date. Can you tell me wedding date, Jesus, so I just know when you're coming back? He says, nope, you got to wait. But there's, there's a date that's set, and all of a sudden, all the details begin coming together. And after every stage and every detail that comes together, there's a relief. All right, got the flowers. We got the dress. All right, we're honeymoon. Okay, we haven't been plan. So all of the, every, there's a relief that happens. And listen, when in our walk with the Lord, there's a destination. He knows that day we don't, but there's a destination. And every growth moment that we have in our Christian life where we see God greater, it kind of relieves us, right? Because he's preparing us for that day. He's preparing us to see him. And that anticipation that grows. And as you get closer to that day, the anticipation you feel, and in our house, you just feel it. Of course, when you got a lot of girls that are all feeling the anticipation, it's like, "All right, we're a little anticipatory. I can feel it. You just feel the energy." But that's that's how we're supposed to be with Jesus. But since we don't have a date that He's coming back, we kind of let our affections wane and maybe even wander. But look, God is about a wedding feast in Matthew twenty-two. Uh, Jesus said, "The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Catch that? The kingdom of heaven. It's like a king, a king, not just a not a successful dude somewhere, not a farmer, king." All authority. King who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, back then, they knew when people with nobility and that type of power, that was, it, it was a deal. It was really big and really long in the celebration. But look at what Jesus is anticipating this as well. In Matthew 26... This is in the Last Supper. I tell you, I will not drink again of this, of, the, of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus lives with that same anticipation that we do. He's our, he's our groom. We are his bride. And we have that anticipation. He is longing for us with the same, probably greater, because he's Jesus. Jesus. The same anticipation. He's longing and looking for us to come as well. In uh, the first century church within Hebrew culture, there were three steps in getting married. There was the betrothal. It was the, this is done. And within the betrothal period in that function, the the husband, the the husband to be, the groom, would come with his best man and give... The father, a payment for the bride. So he paid the bride price at that moment. So they were relationally connected in that moment. And back then it was legal. And in order to break a betrothal, you had to get a divorce, a certificate of divorce. But once that betrothal was, betrothal was there, there was a preparation period. And the wife never knew when he'd come back. She kind of knew the week. But the family would agree upon a time frame. But the wife to be never really knew when it was going to happen. And that's why Jesus gave the example of the virgins in Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil in their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the five who were wise had enough oil to wait. That statement, here is the bridegroom, was the cultural way that they would announce the, the groom has come for his bride. So when they heard that, they immediately knew, Oh, that's, like, that's exactly what we experience. So they had a time frame set from the betrothal period. There was all this preparation. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Hey, be prepared. Have oil in your lamp. And Now, if you think not too far into this, but the oil in our, lamp, in our lamps is not works. It's the Spirit of God. We're not looking around like, ah, oh. when I was in high school, I remember seeing a bumper sticker on a car that said, Jesus is coming back, look busy. dumb, just dumb. It misses the point completely. Yeah, it's like you distract yourself, I guess. I don't know. But when when the bride was ready, she didn't know what day. Can Can you feel the anticipation of those moments, those days? Just waiting and waiting and the excitement. And she's with her bridesmaids and just getting ready. And then all of a sudden, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. That will happen for us. So there was the betrothal, the preparation, and then the supper. And and typically the supper lasted a week uh, within Hebrew culture in the first century. And we, we church, we are betrothed to the lamb if we have trusted Christ for salvation. And maybe you can remember back to that point, that sweet moment where God just turned on the light of his truth in your heart. And you said, forgive me for my sin. I trust you. You died in my place, I trust you. And you felt the awakening of your heart to feel God's love for the first time. We're betrothed in that moment. We're his. And we are in this preparation time with its highs and lows, but a supper is coming. And we have been made ready. We've been clothed in linen with purity and righteousness that was sent to us by our Heavenly Father. Really, Jesus The bride price that he paid with his own blood was righteousness. And we take that righteousness and clothe ourselves in it. Now, it's not a righteousness that we work from inside of us through our performance and good works. It's a righteousness that's on us, justified. We are justified by our faith. So it's a righteousness on us. Look at Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul, uh, my soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. As a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We have, so essentially, Jesus came to the Father and said, Here's the dress for my bride. She needs to cover herself with this, and that bride is made ready. Ready for that moment to hear the cry, here comes your bridegroom. And then look, in verse 9, there's this overwhelming emotion that comes over the Apostle Paul. There is such excitement and thankfulness that he falls down and worships the wrong person. He is so taken by this moment, I believe, that he just falls down and worships. And the servant says, whoa, 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 can't do that. Remember when the, the healed paralytic tries to worship uh, Peter and John? He said, we're just a man like you. No, 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 no. Getting, we we need to worship Jesus. He says, worship God. But then there's the joy of consummation. The moment that we are with Jesus. And in chapter 22, verse 4, and we see his face. Oh, we see his face. When I was in high school, I tell my students this over at North Lake. I teach the senior class so they can handle it without giggling too much. So I trust you will not giggle too much. When I was in high school, I used to ask the Lord, please don't come back until I've gotten married and had a lot of kids (laughs) because I wanted to have sex. I didn't want to not experience that. But my faulty and, and experience the pleasure of having kids. Now, my faulty thinking was this. I thought that that type of experience that we have on this earth would be wiped away and we wouldn't have an experience like it in heaven, but that's the wrong understanding of heaven. Heaven is everything that God created that he said was good, exponentially personified. So I believe that our experience in heaven will be the ecstasy that we experience in physical intimacy, but never stops. Can you imagine enjoying life like that? That's pretty cool. That's something to look forward to. So I tease my wife. Like, in heaven, we're not going to be married. But my friendship, I can still expect to grow with her. That's a good thing. But it's like, I'm going to live right next door to you. Like, we'll have our mansions and stuff. I'm going to be right next door to you. And I'm not going to annoy you anymore. Because you won't have that sinful response to me. And, and my, little, my little annoyances to try to get you aren't going to bother you like they do here. Like one of of the funniest, my son has picked this up too. One of the funniest things that we enjoy about my wife is when I make her irritated with me. I don't know why that is, but it's just weird. But she's just gets this mood look on her face. Owen and I just laugh because all our response is just laughter. So we enjoy that. (laughs) But the joy of our consummation when Jesus comes back is going to be better than anything we can imagine it could be. Anything we can imagine it could be. And then, verses 11 through 21, we see Jesus coming on this white horse. Even though we don't hear his name connected to the rider, we know through the names that are given, this is Jesus. Now, we see heaven opened. Remember the sixth seal in Revelation 8? The sky vanished like a scroll. God literally just opening up heaven and sending Jesus. And the command is to look at a person. It's not to go out and perform a duty. It's not, all right, go, witness, love. No, it was look, look. When we see Jesus, we'll naturally go and witness and love like he does. But listen, this is the point of the whole book of Revelation. I think it can be argued the whole point of the Bible. Jesus is coming back. Now we have we need we need this part in the gospels. We need that his death for us, his resurrection. We need that because he wouldn't be coming back for us if we didn't have that. But this is the culmination of everything, church. Everything. Jesus is coming back for his bride. This is the consummation that God foreshadowed in Genesis 3. This is the culmination of all the works of God to preserve his people, even in their suffering, in their brokenness, to fulfill his covenant promises to them. Remember the hymn, When We All Get to Heaven? What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We will sing and shout the victory because he's coming with this victory. See the characteristics. Do uh, you remember the first time he came riding on a donkey to bear the burden of our shame and our sin? Next time, comes on a horse. He comes on a on a horse as the conquering, the one who has conquered, conquering hero. And the characteristics of the rider on the horse—they they're exactly what we see as God, pre- Jesus presented Himself to the seven churches uh, in Asia. He, he's saying, "Look, here's who I am. This is who I, I've got that." I'm faithful, faithful witness, and I'm true, and I'm reliable word of God, and the sword coming out of my mouth, eyes of fire. We see all of those in the beginning of this book. So Jesus is letting them know this book is to encourage you because the same Jesus that you experience in this life, he's the one that's coming. He's real. He's real. He is the real thing, and he will come back. This rider that we see is faithful and true, the faithful witness of God's love and his power to overcome our death and sin. He is true as in the real thing with eyes of fire. He has a name that's above every name. It's a name that, that no one knows but himself back in the, in the first century, even before that. Uh, names were, when you use somebody's name, you were exercising authority over them. And when Jesus interacted with the demons and they said, we know who you are. You're a son of the most high God. They were trying to like use his first, middle, and last name like he was in trouble. Oh, You watch out, Jeffrey Owen Earhart. You watch out. Coming after you. Like this weird authority coming over. They, they I don't know if you ever knew my middle name. My middle name's, oh, <laughs> the name of my son, that. They just kind of threw that out there. <laughs> I don't know. If, <laughs> but Jesus is saying this, nobody's got my authority, so they can't have my name just yet. But there will be a time when we share his authority in heaven, we'll know that name. Remember, and I think we'll find out a name that he's got for us too. And what, what a moment, what a consummation. And he is clothed, his clothing is dipped in blood. Whose blood? His own blood. It's characteristic of his death, defeating Death. And he is the word of God. Remember, this is the same John that wrote in this gospel account in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. This is Jesus. And if he's the word of God, Jesus is God's speech. He has spoken to us. Hebrews 1. He has spoken to us by his son. So we listen and he is, the, I love this title. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he wears a crown. And on that crown are many diadems. Many. In the original language, a lot. More than you can count. But here, think about this. Each one of us is one of those diamonds on his crown. Isn't that awesome? It's just awesome. And he comes battle Ready. He shows up with his army, I believe that's the saints of God, in their, on their white horses, in their pure linen. I think it's the righteousness that we see that Jesus gives his bride. But remember, we looked at this with the Armageddon stuff, the battle that's being prepared for is never fought. Because that wasn't the real battle that Jesus won. Where did he win the battle? He already won it on the cross. That's the biggest battle. He defeated death. And so when he comes back, he's just implementing all the victory that he won on the cross. But remember, he said it is finished. That was the battle. When Jesus appears, he doesn't need to fight. Because there's already been the victory won on the cross. The last battle. And... and we feel the anticipation, but remember, we're never told that the battle happens. Jesus comes, everybody, like the other side, they think they're coming for a battle. But he's like, "No, nope. you go over here and you go over there and you go over here and you go over there. It's never fought because that wasn't the real battle to begin with. But this seems to happen, and it's a weird thing in, in verse 17. He sees an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice gathering the birds to come. Like while the marriage supper is going on, there seems to be another supper but it's for birds to feast on all of God's enemies. It's gory. Remember they gorged? They were gorged with flesh they were eating so much they I don't know if the birds were vomiting, I'm not sure, but we have this picture of this grotesque because God says no evil will be finished. And we see that happening. There is there's a great supper of judgment and the birds are called. And everybody who does not repent will become carcasses that birds will feast on. Now, these, remember, apoc- apocalyptic language. We're not sure if this is actually, I think it re- it's representative of, of something that will take place. But what I like is that the beasts are captured and they're thrown into the lake of fire get into the lake of fire. See, Jesus wins by speaking. He's spoken our freedom over us. And now he speaks the judgment over Satan and his minions. And see, while we still, while we still have battles in this life, Jesus has won the war. So even when we feel like we've lost a particular battle, maybe it's a battle with our own sin, keep on losing. There's going to be a day when it's all going to go away, because we will see Jesus in an instant. We will have new resurrected bodies that will not be capable of sinning anymore. I really hope and long for that day. So what do we do with this? Church, we keep looking at Jesus. We keep looking at him. We keep looking at how he's been revealed to us. We keep looking at him. And when we look at him, we love him. And we want to stay in love with him. And we want to see his preeminence, his exaltation. He's first in everything. And when we see him, we love him. We feel his love. And then we naturally go out and we witness and we love and we serve and operate by faithfulness that he provides. That's what we do. He's coming back. So, look, it's going to be okay. He's coming back. It's going to be okay. He's coming back. Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you for the excitement of anticipation. And I pray that you would renew that anticipation of your coming. I pray that you would renew it in, in... Uh, deep ways for us that begin to cause us to think differently about the life that we're living, the choices that we're making, or, or the investments that we're making, God, all of that. I pray that we would live in light of eternity. We would live in light of the day that you will come back for us and we will operate by the power of your spirit, the oil in our lamp, God. We would operate with that and our light would be shining so we can hear you say, here comes the bridegroom. God, hasten that day. But Lord, please save so many of our loved ones. Save them all. So in one way we're we're eager to have that supper with you, but God, there's so many. We have lists of people in our lives that we want to be with us in that supper. So God, we do ask that you would 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 cause a, a, a powerful witness to come through and the light of Christ to shine through our lives, and it would be effective in the people that we love and we're around. So they too. Reminded. So I prayed for this, but there was, this is how we're going to go. We're going to go joyfully looking for Jesus, seeing him exalted, but looking for his return. Let's remind ourselves. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you all.